extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust on May 6, 2020. School building shutdowns in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic have upended the way schools work. Students and educators have been thrown into a new world of remote learning with little to no preparation. This is too new a situation to be able to say that we know what the best way to handle it is. But what we can do is talk with expert educators about how they are handling it. Their expertise can help illuminate possible directions that other educators can explore. So we began this podcast series to do exactly that. Talk to expert educators to see the problems they are facing and the solutions they are devising. Today we are talking with Daniel St. Louis, principal of University Park Campus School in Worcester, Massachusetts. University Park Campus School, often called UPCS, is a really special place. Back in the 1990s, Clark University, which is in Worcester, made a number of efforts to improve its surrounding neighborhood. Clark University administrators recognized that being surrounded by a very depressed and dilapidated neighborhood would discourage middle-class families from sending their children to the highly selective university. They began with repairing the houses and other buildings, but they saw that Families with young children were desperate to leave once their children were out of elementary school and that anyone with any opportunity to move did. To try to stabilize the neighborhood, Clark partnered with Worcester Public Schools to open University Park Campus School, which goes from 7th through 12th grade. It's a small school, only about 240 students, housed in a wonderful old school building with creaky wooden stairs. To attend, you must live in the five square blocks that surround UPCS. With a high immigrant population in the neighborhood, about 20% of UPCS's students are learning English, about 20% are Asian, about half Hispanic, and about one-tenth Black. 80% are considered by the state to be high need. The school graduates about 90% of its students in four years, 100% in five years. Most students go on to college. The school retains a strong relationship with Clark University. Students take classes there, and if they are admitted, they attend tuition-free. When I first began working for EdTrust, I was hired to find and learn from schools that were educating children of color and children from low-income backgrounds to high levels. I immediately began hearing about UPCS and visited in 2005. Back then, June Aracy was the principal, and I wrote about the school in It's Being Done, published by Harvard Education Press in 2007. She trained teacher Ricky Hall to take on more and more leadership roles, and when she took a job in the district office, he became principal. He did the same for Dan St. Louis, who began as a teacher and gradually took on more leadership roles. When Ricky Hall took the job of principal of nearby Claremont, St. Louis became principal of UPCS. I wrote about June Aracy's subsequent work as principal of Chandler Elementary in Worcester and Ricky Hall's work at Claremont. In my book, Schools That Succeed, published in 2017, I wrote about both of their experiences. So I have been visiting and watching the evolution of UPCS leadership for a very long time, but I haven't talked with you for a while, Dan. Welcome. I hope you and your family are safe and healthy. Thank you so much for thinking of me. And uh, we are, we're doing about as well as we can be, and I hope the same for you. 
So um, did I describe UPCS accurately and your role? Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean, you know us well enough that I think you get the story by now. <laughs> Massachusetts has been really hit hard by the coronavirus. And I saw that Worcester has had a spike in cases in the last few weeks. How, how are your families doing and your school families? Yeah, it's it's been a little bit rough here. Massachusetts, I think, is only behind New Jersey and New York. Um, and we're obviously a, a, a small, physically small state. So um, the concentrations are are up. Worcester right now is in what they're calling the surge. Um, the hospitals are, are taxed, but but holding up. You know, thank you to our frontline workers. You know, we all we all know people who have it. You know, I have relatives that that have it and are thankfully doing okay. Um, I know my kids have family members and know people that have it, but um, so far, you know, we're we're doing as well as we can. One of the things I was wondering is, what have you been learning in the weeks since you closed the school building? <laughs> so so much. You know, I, I I've listened to to some of your interviews on this subject um, already, and it always has me thinking of like of ways that I think we at University Park are lucky and we're well prepared for for not this exactly, but for for things that happen. And then like everyone else, I'm sure you're talking to is figuring out, oh, we were not ready in many, many ways too. Um, something that, that this isn't gonna be news, but something that it just helps me to reflect on is that our schools were not built for this, clearly. And that sounds like an obvious statement. Um, a school like University Park, one of our great, great strengths is the relationships, the social learning, group work, kids learning together, being with your friends all day and doing academic work, um, which I think is largely responsible for that graduation rate. You know, school's not a bummer. You get to hang out with, with your buds. Uh, and obviously right now that is off. So a, a, a big part of, of how we see our identity um, has been taken away by, by the current situation. Um, how do we and other people try to remedy that? Um, you know, you know from, from University Park, we had never put uh, a big stress on technology. We never saw, you know, uh, uh, any sort of, you know, silver bullets for fixing education. We, we, we try everything that we can try. And, you know, you've seen our building and in the old days, tech didn't work. I mean, it's the I don't know. from 1885. Can, yeah. Can you even have the wiring in that building? I mean, there's right, a exactly. lot of wood in that building. Ex exactly. <laughs> Um, I can't remember when the last time you visited was, but over the past several years, um, we do have working internet now. We do have wireless connectivity now. Um, the, the, the Worcester public schools, um, we're not, we're not one-to-one, -one, but we're, but we're probably more than two-to-one with Chromebook devices. Um, and so having access to that working technology now has for us over the last couple of years not changed the heart of what we have always done, but it's expanded the way that we can do it. So even though we rely so much on that in-person, in-class relationship connectedness, my teachers over the last couple of years, um, spearheaded by by Jody Bird, one of my one of my longtime teachers, who's now our our what they call a Google trainer. She's a certified Google trainer, has really expanded how we've used technology. Again, not relying on it. Not, not doing something different than we've always done, but nearly every teacher already had Google Classrooms set up. Nearly every teacher was already messaging students through there, through emails, um, turning in assignments through there even. Even if it was a face-to-face -face kind of thing, our kids were already used 
to that kind of digital platform. So I feel really lucky in that, that when transitioning to this, there was not a, as big a technological curve that a lot of schools are facing. So that's really good. Um, but what has struck me, and I, it's sort of like you're saying the buildings, you know, weren't built for this. It's kind of an obvious point. And yet I haven't really seen it made. What you use computers for is communication, not so much instruction, right? Am I, is that like, yes. I, I, yes. I see so much about computer learning, computer learning. That's not actually what you're using the computers for. You're using it as a communication device, a sophisticated yes, as, communication device. Yep. And as, as an extension of what we were already, of the human part of what we've always done. Much like Zoom is an extension of a human part rather than I'm not, I'm not like taking lessons and doing an assignment because of the computer. I am communicating with you because of the computer. Right, I, right. That sounds almost too obvious to be stated. And yet I think it's an important point. Um, the phone was, you did, every technological um, advancement has always been um, kind of like, oh, well, kids will not need teachers anymore because we have radio. Um, we have audio visuals. We have all kinds of things. We don't need teachers. That's actually never been true. <laughs> and it certainly isn't now. And I'll throw your phrase back at you. You say it's a seemingly obvious thing, but but do we? One thing I have explicitly learned through this is that kids need their teachers, despite all this technology. And it's great, and it's making things possible that would not otherwise be. But kids need their teachers, especially our population, our urban, you know, low income population. So, do you have an example in your head right now of what you mean by that that you can that you can share? Sure. So we've gone to what we're calling remote learning, uh, and that's been in a few different phases in Worcester, and it's kind of depended on on what the governor's current um, you know orders were. You know, one stage when it was you were out for three weeks, another stage when it was well, it's going to be longer, and a third phase coming up where it's like, okay, we're just not going to be there the rest of the year. So in our in our current what I'll call phase two of remote learning, which we're wrapping up this week, I have a teacher who is. Uh, Megan Rosa, my, my middle school um, English teacher, who through her remote learning, and, and I sent you a link to these plans, you know, it, it, you can take a, a, a template uh, of, you know, days of the week and subject matters and, and just plug some assignments into them. But if you look at the documents that my teachers have put together for this remote learning, there is nothing more UPCS. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can see it, you can, he you can hear their voices in it. Um, and so she's having kids read Freak the Mighty, which is a great book for young readers. Um, it is available online. She can do it through that. She knows that some kids were not going to be able to do that. We have some kids with zero technology, not an awful lot, but but some. So here's how, you know, how 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 do kids need teachers and how do teachers support kids? Teachers don't go in the building anymore, but occasionally I still have to. So she knows I'm going there. She says, hey, can you grab me six or eight, whatever it was, Freak the Mighty books, drop them at my front door. She said, no problem. Grab them, drop them at her front door. 
she then dropped them at kids' front doors. So now she's got she's got the virtual part going through Google Classroom. They got links to the audio. They've got links to her reading aloud to them. And then for the ones that she knows that's there's going to be an equity issue there and these certain kids aren't going to be able to do that, she's even further reaching out to deliver them physical books, some physical paper, and trying the best we can right now to, to enable learning for all of our students. And what that means is she knows what the circumstances are of each student. Yes, absolutely. And, and has, you know, figured, figured about that. And, well, as, as you know, the University Park approach to, to things is we, we follow standards. We follow curriculum standards. We, we teach the stuff we're supposed to teach. But the way we teach it is highly tailored to the kids that we have in front of us. And that changes year to year. That changes class period to class period in my building. I have teachers who they'll, they'll te- they know in advance. They're not just reflecting on the way they taught a lesson to one class and saying, I need to change it up for the next one. They'll plan the way they do it from the start in two different ways because it's personalized to the kids in front of them. And so, you know, the technology, again, to your point, has made the communication piece, has made us able to bring what we do as, as human educators more possible to more kids, but we're still tailoring it to, we, to who we know are on the receiving end of that. We were just talking with Jenny Black uh, from Kansas. And one of the things she really appreciated about Kansas was that the governor said almost from the beginning, we're not reopening the schools this year. And what that permitted was a kind of certainty that it sounds like you didn't have. You had to kind of do the, well, we might be open in two weeks. So we'll just kind of, we'll hang on for a bit. And then, no, it's going to be longer. We better do something more serious. You know, I mean, that, that uncertainty, I would imagine, was difficult. It was difficult and it was just so strange at first. And I'm not sure by by what time it rolled around to, to you know, Kansas needing to make that decision. I don't know the timeline of the virus, but Massachusetts was pretty early in knowing that something, we're, we're going to have an outbreak because of the Biogen conference in, in Boston. They knew that there had been a hub there and that those folks were now all around the state. So without really knowing what the full scale was going to be, the governor had you know, had to start making the best decisions he could at the time, which was, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? And so I was in a meeting, it was a Thursday uh, in, in early March. I was at a, a Google training, actually. Um, and we and the administrators were called to this like emergency meeting, like something's going to happen. We think we're going to have to close for a couple of days, clean the buildings over the weekend so that when we come back on Monday, everything will be sanitized. And we did that. We did that. You know, I, I, I myself spent the weekend in the building trying to get ready for Monday when kids were coming back. Well, we didn't go back Monday. And then they said, OK, it's going to be, you know, three weeks. In the meantime, the superintendent had said, hey, we need to prepare. It looks if things get bad. And I know other other folks you've had on have, have said similar things. Um, if it gets bad, we need to be ready for maybe even three weeks of closure. And everyone was like, oh, my goodness, how are we going to be out of school for three weeks? And we put together the paper packets. And I know that, you know, that's that's a big, big thing <laughs> across the country. And so we did that. We we worked our tails off and, and photocopied packets. There was a day when kids could come in and get their stuff, uh, like out of their lockers, as well as here's your packet. You know, we checked everybody off for kids who said, no, nah, I don't even need one. I'm fully um, internet ready. We said, great. You don't even need a paper packet. Everything's in Google Classroom. Great. We could get through most of the kids that way. For the kids that didn't come in, we didn't really know. I drove around and I stuck them in mailboxes. We have a small neighborhood, as you noted, at the at the top. <laughs> um, so 
you know, it was, it, that was what we were thinking that it was going to be three weeks. And then it was, you know, okay, it's going to be till May 4th. And that's when we started this remote learning plan, which, you know, we have a theme every week and we try, we tried to put together this for the past, past five weeks, we tried to put together um, engaging kind of fun activities, um, really just looking to reach out to kids, which we were doing anyway. We're trying to contact every single kid. Eventually we did contact every single kid and just trying to keep their brains engaged. Then more recently, when the governor said, you know, we're done for the year, uh, the state commissioner um, put out some essential standards. So now we're now we're on to real academic standards the remainder of the year here um, through the through the remote learning. The district now is putting together a plan to roll out Chromebooks, um, which for a district our size with 25,000 kids, and I, and I know Boston was able to do it, but, um, you know, Worcester just wouldn't have had enough yet to really get them out to everyone. Plus they were leased. So that's got its own <laughs> issue. And I don't know, you know, that's above my pay grade. I don't know how they worked all that out, but they're going to be giving them out. And that's not, you know, obviously that's not to, to hope that in the next two weeks, every kid can do some remote learning, but these kids are keeping them through the summer because, you know, what about the fall? We don't know about the fall. Or even if we were to open back up normally in the fall, we've learned these lessons now if another pandemic hits, you know. Or which, if it spikes which, you know, back up, yeah. Right, you hope and pray it doesn't, but but in the event that, you know, November comes around and it's like, ooh, we're, we're, we're going, you know, it's spiking again, we're gonna have to be out of school for three weeks. Well, then hopefully we've learned those lessons now that we can do that with more fidelity than we've been able to do already. So how are you handling the whole high school credit? Uh, I mean, so you run from seventh through 12th grade, 7th and 8th grade, that's not the high school, although I think some of your students do get high school credit in eighth grade. Isn't that right? Or not? Uh, not for a couple of classes, but that's not the, the major. That's not the major. But I mean, high school, you're supposed to accumulate credits toward graduation. Um, how, how is that? How are you handling that? Yeah. The, um, and we had a lot of our, of our um, high school kids take advanced placement courses as well. And I don't know if you've done any research into that, but those those exams are still going to happen. They're going to be very different than what they used to be. But those exams were were always still on. So those kids have been really engaged the whole time. The other kids, it's, you know, it depends on the grade level. It depends uh, on a lot of on a lot of things. But um, what we've decided here in Worcester is that the foundation of their grades for the year will be their first three quarters. Uh, we did get through midterms of third quarter before we went out. And then with the remote learning, we want, we're not going to do a fourth quarter grade, but everything, anything that they do, they will get credit for. And teachers can apply that to the year long grade that will end up on their transcript. So we're trying to, to encourage and incentivize as much as possible and trying not to penalize. So they, they canceled the MCAS. That's the state assessment, which I know you use as part of the information you look at in order to think about improvement for the next year. How are you going to replace that information? Um, that's that's going to be trickier for larger schools than mine. By the time my teachers know the kids so deeply, but that by the time they see the MCAS scores, like they already knew what kids were going were to get. So that's not really a mystery. Another nice thing about our school is, yes, it's small, but the grade span is wider than other schools too. So 
you know, the traditional middle schools in Worcester are only grades seven and eight. So that's a great question for them and how they're going to do that, you know. Um, but for us, we've got the history of the scores from, you know, every single year. So missing one year for us and my teachers who take, for example, my 10th graders, my, my two main teachers of the, of the 10th grade MCAS subjects, so English and math, knew those kids so deeply already and will be in very close contact with the teacher that they have next year to, to, to explain face to, well, hopefully face to face, maybe like this, where exactly they got to with those kids, who needs what, and that next teacher next year will pick up right there. I will say this, my, my, my sophomores who were, who were looking at their big year for, for MCAS testing, not that anyone's ever super psyched to take the state exam, but the English portion was right around the corner. And they're a group that has struggled in a lot of ways since they came to us. And it was, it was, you could feel that they were in a good place academically and in their mindsets. And they've been, we don't do exactly MCAS prep, but they know what's coming at the end of the year. The teacher had worked really hard with them. And it was like, here we go. We're ready to do it. And now they don't get that chance. And so that's, that's another kind of bummer of it. So I, I never thought I'd be sad to say that my kids didn't take MCAS this year, <laughs> but they were, they were, they were, I, they were feeling good. I think, I think they were ready. Well, yeah, well, you've set yourself a challenge and you think you're ready. And even if it's not a fun challenge, you, uh, there is a certain amount of disappointment. Speaking of disappointments, how are kids doing about their graduation ceremony? Yeah, they are disappointed. Uh, it's looking right now like we're going to uh, do virtual graduation. Uh, the city is purchasing caps and gowns for every senior in the city um, to make sure that, you know, A, they have that as a memento. Um, B, it's looking like we'll probably be able to, to take pictures of them in their regalia um, and through uh, whichever. There's a couple of different platforms being discussed right now. But through this virtual graduation, hopefully be able to you know, either either say live or have the pre-recorded speeches, have me calling the names of the graduates, and hopefully a picture or even a short video of them there in their cap and gown. So they they are disappointed. We're gonna we're gonna try to make it as real as possible for them. And you know, don't quote me on this, but I don't see what would be wrong with I have I only have forty graduates in a given year. I don't see what would be wrong with just inviting them to next year's graduation. You know, and actually walk across the stage. Uh, so that's just that's just an idea in my in my head. But but they're disappointed. That, uh, we usually have a senior awards ceremony. We're going to try to do that live through Zoom. It's usually in front of the whole school. Um, you know, we only have, you know, just under 250 kids. And I think you can host a 250 person meeting on Zoom. Um, so we're trying to keep to those traditions. You know, we give academic awards and, and have a little fun and show a slideshow and everything. So we're trying to trying to keep that tradition going. We did a teacher parade, if you've heard of those at the beginning of this. And, you know, my faculty is like, you know, why? Can we have a graduation parade? We all wear robes ourselves at graduation. So throw on the robe, drive through the neighborhood, say congratulations to people. So we'll see. We're, we're, we're trying, but, but they're disappointed. I can imagine. So you're, are you still a, an innovation school? Yes. Yeah. So has that changed the amount of support you get from the district? So I should just explain. So um, Massachusetts began the innovation school program in part so that schools wouldn't feel they need to be charters in order to have some flexibility around school policies and school um, schedules and curriculum and so forth. 
And um, they granted that to basically high-performing schools. And I wondered if that changed the amount of support you get from Worcester. You're supposed to be independent. So do they kind of say, ah, you're handling it yourself? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, My understanding is that the, the concept of an innovation school was a little bit based on us in the first place because we were an in-district regular, you know, public school that no one thought was a public school. You know, even it's 20 years, it's 20 years later, my parents still think that I work at a charter school. And just because it's so different, it's, it's, it's small, it's strange. It doesn't do things the way anyone else does them. Um, But we've had the success that we've had that, that, you know, the district knows that we're a unique situation and that we, we exercise some autonomies and some flexibilities in the way we approach things. But at the end of the day, we're still a Worcester public school and, and, you know, we don't operate like a charter in that we're independent or anything like that. So we've, we've got, we've got as much support as, as anyone else. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. I know, I know you've always had an intensive summer school for the incoming seventh graders who often come in quite far behind where they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you going to be able to do that? I'm going to guess probably not. Yeah. Um, We've been doing that transition academy for the seventh graders since we opened in the nineties. Several years ago, we added one for the ninth graders. So the kids going from middle school into high school and those academies, they're not built to close the gaps in that the kids have coming in academically. That's, that's what our, that's what our regular school does. The summer academies are intentionally are intentional ways to reframe how kids see themselves as academic learners. So for the sixth graders coming in, you know, they're going from many of them have only been to one elementary school in their whole life and they're 11, 12 years old. They're going to be entering a school that has sometimes 20 year olds in it. So for them, the point is getting introduced to secondary type of work um, and introduced to it, like make it have a little bit of fun. See yourself as, you know, as someone who can have, who can voice an academic thought to your, to your peer, because not all of them are able to do that yet. For the ninth graders or the rising ninth graders, we hold it on Clark University's campus. So the idea is, okay, now we're going to show you what high school expectations are like, because after that, we want you sitting in these chairs at this, well, not necessarily this college, but at a college. And this could be one of them. So it's all about shifting your mindset, having some fun, getting ready for the next step, building your foundation. I doubt we're going to be able to do them, but I know that when they start the year, that's where my teachers' mindsets will be at in terms of bringing them that sort of an experience when school reopens anyway. One of the one of the things that really, I mean, there are so many things that are very special about UPCS, but one of the things that I remember hearing was if if there was a kind of a rowdy seventh grade class, basically what you guys would do is lock them in the room with 12th graders and have the 12th graders explain the culture of UPCS. And we don't do that stuff here. <laughs> I mean, because the culture gets so ingrained in, in students. I, I, I had to take a picture of this one day to, to, to text to, to a mom of one of my upperclassmen who I knew would be really proud because I was struggling with a couple of middle schoolers. They had, I don't know, it's a couple of guys who, who are always up to something. And I think they had gotten up in each other's faces and were barking at each other or something. And so, you know, I bring him into my office and 
I don't remember if I was about to bark at him myself or what, but, you know, I saw about four 11th graders, you know, just waiting in the office to get into the next class. And I was like, boys, come here. And they come in. They're like, what do you need? I was like, these two talk some sense into them. And, and they did. And, and they, they say stuff that's on theme that with what I would have said, but they say it in their way. And it's coming from a kid who, who is, is hopefully a role model for the little ones. Um, you know, my, this might go without saying, but I've always thought that this, that there was a misconception of, of what role models are and that it's an inherently positive thing to strive for. My idea of role models is that it's someone who you think your life is probably going to be like. And so it's one thing to have old white Mr. St. Louis yelling at you. It's another thing to have a kid a couple of years older than you who looks like you and has been through what you've been through and speaks like you say it. That's a role model. And so they do, they do better than I ever can with disciplinary issues. Yeah. It's it. The culture of UPCS is so strong that the students are their own enforcers of it. It's, and it's really interesting to see. So. And the, the, the older students are happy to do it. Well, because they, they, they their reputation now lies with these younger people in part. Yeah. And, and so much of what we do too is, is, you know, student voice, student choice, student independence. I mean, we, we treat our kids as young adults, you know, a kid has an idea, run with it, please. You got a club you want to, great, do it. You got a fundraiser. What's it going to be like? What support do you need from me? Run with it, go do it. And so when they are pulled into that role of, of having to set expectations for the younger kids, they, they treat it as a young adult and they have, they have, they know they have my trust and, you know, they really, I mean, I think kids in general, but they really rise to the challenge. I think that's that kind of sums up UPCS. The kids rise to the challenge and you yeah. provide that opportunity. So thank you so much. I We may circle back at some point to hear how you're progressing. Um, I hope that's okay. I, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. We at EdTrust hope you and your family and everyone in Worcester stay safe and healthy. I want to now introduce my colleague from EdTrust, Tanji Reed Marshall. Tanji is EdTrust's director of practice and a longtime teacher. Tanji, um, uh, I know you've never been to a University Park campus school, but don't you want to visit now? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I was struck so much by what Dan said regarding the identity, something we keep hearing alluded to, but he named it in a very direct and special way in that the identity of the school shaped a couple of their approaches to this remote and distance learning. And so, you know, we think about culture of schools and how you lay down culture. And one of the things we've been talking about, you and I have been sort of ruminating about is how do you maintain culture in a space where you don't see each other every day? right? Because we know that there are layers of cultures within buildings. And so to hear how, you know, the identity of the school has shaped the ways in which um, technology has been used, the way in which the students are engaging with learning, the ways in which the teachers are ensuring every single child is able to stay connected to each other and the learning, I think, was very powerful. And I think that's something so important for leaders to consider as they think about what it means to 
not so much reshape their culture, you know, but how do they strategically consider the best elements of what's been going on in distance learning and remote learning, and then connect it to the best parts of their school culture so that when schools do reopen in whatever configuration, the core, using his words, the core of who they are remains intact, even if we have this kind of revolving door of remote versus face-to-face, you know, configuration of schools. But of course, like not all schools have a culture that you want to transmit in that kind of way. You might have to rethink how to create a culture. That's right. That lasts through the remote learning. That, Mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't, that is so strong that you can survive not seeing each other every day. Right, which is the point of what's, what are the best parts that schools are experiencing. It's going to take a lot of, you know, sort of reflection and a lot of data gathering on data points that we don't always talk about, right? So building leaders are going to really have to, and district leaders as well, right, going to really have to sit back a little bit as much as we can and consider some very hard uh, questions regarding the relationships, you know, that they've seen develop and maybe some that have eroded. Thinking about the structures that they put in place that fostered even deeper communication. I spoke with a student a, a while back and the student said, I noticed that my teachers are more human now than they were before. And so that's something to be thinking about, right? So what are the characteristics about teachers and leaders and administrators that are sort of showing up now in ways that maybe they did not for good or for bad, right? So, well, for one thing, the kids might see, uh, students might see the teacher with their own kids and in their own homes. And that's right. um, And sort of, I remember, I remember being in sixth grade when I realized my teacher, you know, had a family. It just seems so weird to me. Like grocery shopped, right? And did those weird shopping things. Yeah. You know, I just think that's something we haven't talked that much about is the culture of buildings. And and clearly uh, UPCS is a culture driven building. And I wonder, you know, that's a piece that really has to be considered as schools think about the other items, right? Where students are going to be sort of academically, what, how are they going to come back together in the building physically? Well, with all the physical changes, you're going to have to think about the culture. And it's something I think uh, Dan and his staff may not have to think that much about because theirs is so strong that it, like you said, it's going to sort of survive the ins and outs and the ebbs and flows of this process that seems to be with us for the long haul. What strikes me, and I'm sure Dan is worried about this, is it's the incoming students. Like once once they've got them, they've got them. But the incoming mm-hmm. students, how you inculcate those students without having all the ability to grab the 11th graders and say, okay, you explain it to, the, to them because they're not listening to me anymore. Um, without being able to do that, I, I think that will be very difficult for UPCS. It'll be difficult for all, all kinds of schools. Um, but the other thing that really struck me is how clear he was that kids need teachers. I think there's so, yeah. <laughs> there's so much um, hype about 
well, just put them in front of Khan Academy. I'm going to take, like, that's right. I, yeah. And Mm-mm. I'm sure Khan Academy does a perfectly good job in some ways um, if you don't really need a teacher, but most kids need teachers. Oh yeah. I, you know, you heard me say this before, did a round of student focus groups recently and that it was a pervasive uh, statement from kids. We don't want to be sitting in front of computers all day. If this is how you're going to teach me, then just let me be at home. Kids have an expectation. They understand what schooling is all about. Like they get it, right? They, they know they go to this place and these people do these things. And we all kind of agree with one another that that's the relationship, right? We enter into this relationship with this tacit agreement that teachers are going to do this thing called help kids learn stuff. And kids are going to do this thing called, I'm going to learn stuff. I'm going to learn it from an adult, right? Who they expect to be more knowledgeable than they are on a lot of different topics. And so, yeah, Dan is right. Kids need teachers and kids want teachers, right? So it is a need, absolutely. But I think what is super apparent right now, and I'm excited because I'm a former classroom teacher, that students want their teachers, right? You know, I've been talking to students and you heard me say this, they miss that. You know, they miss being able to get that immediate feedback. They miss being able to just see the person, ask a quick question, not have to wait for a response via email or, you know, that, that might take a day or so. They want what school is about, um, plus some others. But I think his point about the need and the want for teachers is, is critical. And, and I'm just really excited that he was so insistent and adamant about the strength of their culture and and not, you know, as you pointed out, they're going to be challenged to do this kind of inculcation differently. But like he said, that will be job number one, right? Like that it's still going to be a priority when they come back. That is where they're going to start, right? Right. He'll get to diagnostics. He'll get to whatever, but he's going to start with sustaining and rebuilding the culture of UPCS. Like that is something, if they learn nothing else from what Dan talked about, be thinking critically deeply about the culture of the building, you have to kind of like recreate and reshape and remold and recast. That is so important. You know, and we haven't had a conversation about the culture of buildings, which is super necessary. Well, we started it here today. Here we go. Here we go. So that wraps up (laughs) this episode of Education Trust Podcast, Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Our aim is to bring you the voices of effective educators grappling with all the questions of equity and excellence that face all educators today. I've been really inspired by the thoughtfulness we have heard in all our conversations as part of this podcast, and today's was no uh, exception. If you're inspired, I hope you'll subscribe to Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times and recommend it to your friends and networks. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email districts at edtrust.org or tweet at Ed Trust or me at K 
Karen Chenoweth, K-A-R-I-N-C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H, or Tangie at Remarsh76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank everyone at Ed Trust who are supporting this podcast. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks and see you next time.